0: Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's August 8th, and I'm your healthcare show host, Christine Harges. Calling into Fool HQ is Todd Campbell. Hello, Todd. How is earnings season treating you? I know it's a busy time to be a Fool.com writer.
1: Oh, wow. Christine, you know, we're just cranking out article after article after article, trying to give the best insight into what these companies are reporting to, uh, to the people who are going to Fool.com. And in um, searching for, for you know what to do next. Uh, hopefully, they're not overreacting to any of the earnings results that are coming out because obviously, we like to take a longer term view though, right?
0: Absolutely. That being said, though, because earnings are so important to investors, both short-term type investors and long-term investors, we thought that today would be a useful time to check in on how some healthcare companies did this earnings season. We're uh, a couple weeks into the, the middle of it, so we figured now would be a good time to get you all up to speed on some of the important announcements from some of the most highly watched companies. So, On today's show, we'll be covering Celgene and, of course, Gilead Sciences. And we're also going to take a look at the ongoing battle between cancer blockbusters Keytruda and Opdivo. But let's start first with Celgene. Todd, this is one of your top stock picks for 2017. How's it doing so far?
1: It might be my top stock picks until 2020. I mean, this this company is uh, a dynamo, and honestly, I don't know what's going to slow it from here. You know, there's there's not a lot of patent expiration risk. Associated with the stock until we get into the 2020s, and if you look at their drugs that they're selling, I mean these these drugs are growing uh, by you know well into the double digits year over year. It's pretty and incredible.
0: Course, the top three drugs of theirs all experienced sales growth of at least 20% year over year in the second quarter.
1: Was yeah, what's fascinating about that, or I don't know, if fascinating is the right word. But look at Revlimid. I mean, here's a drug that's been around and widely used in multiple myeloma for. For a decade, and you know the sales of that drug up 19% year over year. I mean, or, you know that's just remarkable. Two billion dollars in sales from Revlimid uh, as as it continues to win market share in newly diagnosed multiple myeloma patients. Um, you know you're seeing uh, you know, Cellgene's always been a big player in that disease indication and. You know, Revlimid is a big reason behind that, and you know, one of the greatest things about Celgene and their R&D team, Christine, you and I have talked about it in the show previously, is that they know how to expand labels. You know, they get approval for one indication, and then they've slowly but surely, you know, increased the addressable uh, patient population for that drug, and that's been the case with Revlimid, with approval after approval after approval, uh, expanding the use and the prescription volume.
0: One other thing that they've been able to do in the blood cancer market is get the drug to be used by patients for a longer amount of time. That's something that they noted, particularly in the U.S. market with Revlimid, and also in Pomalis, which that had that drug had sales increasing 23% year over year as patients were staying on it longer. Now, yeah, they, you know
1: they almost break in about 2.5 billion dollars a quarter from those two drugs, right? You get two billion or so from Revlimid, you get another 391 billion. Uh, from polymers last quarter. And that's, as you mentioned, it's a third line drug for multiple myeloma, very commonly used. And you know, they're thinking, going back to that whole label expansion thing, Christine, they think that they might be able to advance poist over time into the second line setting, which, of course, could provide um, even even greater sales growth going forward. I mean, overall, just to back up for a second, you know the the numbers that were reported by Celgene, $3.27 billion in revenue for the quarter. That's up 19% year over year. That was a beat by about $40 million more than industry watchers were looking for. Uh, adjusted EPS was $1.82 per share. That was up 26% year over year. That also beat industry watchers by $0.04.
0: Cents. Right, so we've broken down how they were doing with their blood cancer drugs, but something that I also find really impressive about this company has been their ability to expand into other indications. For example, the autoimmune space with their drug OTESLA. This one had growth of 49% year over year. And this one has just been absolute dynamite. I remember back uh, one quarter ago, they were disappointed with the growth because it was only like 14% or something that is still a very strong growth number. And the, the strategy here that they're looking to do with OTesla is to shift to a lower price in hopes of an increase in volume. And this certainly seems to be working that more and more insurers are being persuaded to cover the drug earlier on in a patient's disease progression.
1: Yeah, psoriasis is an important indication. It's a multi-billion dollar indication. A lot of people suffer from it. And Otesla is an oral drug. It's a simple and relatively easy drug uh, to prescribe and and for for patients to use and and stick with. Their market share is already 21.7% of the psoriasis market, which is pretty phenomenal when you think about the fact that this drug's only been in the market for a couple years and you know with 40% you know sales growth and, and now running at you know a clip that puts them on pace for 1.5 billion or so in sales this year it's hard to to argue that this drug doesn't have a good shot at uh, achieving 2 billion or, or greater in sales at its peak
0: It really does seem like everything is going right for this company. They raised their adjusted earnings guidance to a range of $7.25 to $7.35 per share. This was up from a previous range of $7.15 to $7.30 per share. There was more good news that came out just yesterday on Tuesday that the FDA approved yet another drug for this company, and this one is called Idhifa.
1: What's really interesting about this company, Christine, and we've, we talk about this a little bit when we talk about companies like Gilead and some of these other large companies and trying to figure out how they're going to fuel growth in the future. Will it all be internal? Will it be acquisition dra- driven? Will it be collaborations? Celgene has been a big fan of collaborations, and Adifo is a, is a drug that they developed via a collaboration with Agios. And it's a very, it's a novel mechanism. It's the first drug approved to treat uh, uh, refractory or relapsing acute myeloid leukemia um, with IDH2 mutation. Okay, so you know it's not a huge patient population that this drug targets, but it's an important step forward to broadening out their revenue stream into. Uh, other other cancer indications and, and you know essentially just cr- crunching the numbers and looking at how much they're going to charge for it and what the average duration is you know i mean in the us alone that's that should put you know the market opportunity uh, between 100 and 200 million per year which they'll share between the two companies but over time industry watchers think that if it can get approved in frontline setting eventually in aml that you know you could have a, another blockbuster drug to to sell gene's credit
0: you mentioned their strategy of having partnerships with a whole host of mostly smaller companies, probably entirely smaller companies. And so this is absolutely key when you look at this company's pipeline, which, of course, we can talk all day long about the products and how they're doing. But really, when you turn to the future, it's going to be about how the new products perform. And so you look at a snapshot of CellGene's pipeline, and it's just absolutely massive because they're able to fund so many different developments due to all of these partnerships. Todd, does anything in the pipeline in particular? particular stand out to. You.
1: Well, you know, the, on the on the the collaboration deals, there were some interesting news uh, um, on a drug that they're developing with Bluebird Bio earlier this year. People should check it out. They're working on CAR T therapies with Juno Therapeutics. That's interesting. They've got a deal with Accelerin uh, on some interesting drugs as well. And then outside of those collaboration deals, they've also uh, taken they took a plunge a couple years ago and for 7 billion dollars bought Receptos so they could get their hands on ozanimod and that is uh, looking like a pretty smart decision on their part because they've put up positive phase three data in relapsing multiple scler- sclerosis, uh, and that's a huge market, and they think that they're going to be able to file for FDA approval later this year, and if, if they get the go-ahead, I mean, this, this is a drug that could easily be doing a billion, two billion, or more in sales.
0: Great. Lots to watch there. This is a company that's up 16% so far just this year. But let's pivot to a company that has been a little bit more of a disappointing investment. I know for a lot of Fools, Todd, you and me included, Gilead Sciences has been a painful stock to own. It remains one of the largest healthcare companies and we do want to make sure that we're keeping our listeners updated. This is a company that just reported earnings as well on July 26th. What stood out to you?
1: boy i tell you if if you're an investor in gilead sciences like we are and you've you've watched the market soar to new highs it is so so disappointing when you look and see that the gilead sciences stock has gone from 120 in 2015 to a low of, of the mid 60s uh, earlier this summer and, and and that's just been it's been a little disheartening and the reason for gilead sciences drop off in share price has been a slowing in revenue from hepatitis C, an indication that they are basically reshaped dramatically in 2014 when they launched Sovaldi and Harvoni. They were racking up tens of almost $20 billion run rate just from uh, those drugs at their peak. However, competition has driven down prices, warehousing of sick patients is now done, so you're really only treating newer cases uh it's it's just been it's been tough sledding offsetting the drop in revenue from hepatitis C and as a result the share price has taken it on the chin however all may not be lost right christine because we've seen the shares pop up recently they're trading back into the mid 70s and i think a lot of that is because you know people are are getting a little bit more encouraged that perhaps perhaps the floor is getting put in finally on on the hepatitis C business,
0: I, I wish I had the conference call in front of me right now. There was a fantastic quote in there by somebody in the prepared remarks talking about how there's fantastic surprises uh, to the upside and the downside whenever you're talking about a cure, and that's really what you have to remember when you're thinking about this company in particular. It's its HCV drugs, is that it's a functional cure for this disease, and so you don't get that recurring revenue. And as you treat more and more people, you're eating your own market, and that's a wonderful. Thing for the healthcare system as a whole, but that is those are the driving principles behind why this company has struggled for the past few years or so. In uh, yeah,
1: in, in in the second quarter, you saw that struggle continue, right? You had revenue of seven point one four billion, that was down eight point two percent year over year, um, and you had earnings per share of two dollars and fifty six cents. That was you know good relative to what industry watchers were looking for, Um, but again, it was down. Year over year, right. So and
0: of course it, a lot of that is being driven by hepatitis C sales falling so much. They fell 28 percent year over year to just under three billion. But that actually was almost a, a good thing because this was actually a slowing of the decline, and it did beat some people's expectations. And they right. were able and
1: you to take it as a whole pie, right, Christine? You combine, look at the antiviral business that they do with HIV drugs, which is a huge business for them still, and some of the new product launches they've had there. And then you look at the hepatitis C business, and you say, "Hmm, maybe we're seeing a little bit of stabilization here in the United States. Perhaps you know you can start to I don't know, pull up from this, this downturn, or at least level off." Um, and then people can start to get more excited about what may be coming in the future.
0: Yep, and the company was able to increase its revenue guidance from $22.5 to $24.5 billion, up to a new range of $24 to $25.5 billion. An important part of that was that it upped its HCV sales guidance uh, a little bit within that uh, that range uh, a large part of this is that HcV awareness is growing and they had this campaign to advocate for baby boomers getting tested because for a long time because there wasn't really a functional cure for this disease people didn't bother getting tested for it or they didn't know that there was a, a cure out there and so as awareness grows that you can actually go get tested for this disease and if you have it you can have it be cured that is expanding the addressable population beyond what people even knew were out there as far as Patient population numbers.
1: Right, there were a lot of people who were carrying the d- disease, but who were undiagnosed. And you know, when it does, you know, become a problem, it can become a very big problem. And that's why developing a functional cure like this, like the ones that were developed by Gilead, was so so important. I think that that, you know, just from using the uh, awareness campaign that you were just mentioning, they increased the number of diagnoses here in the U.S. I think to like 180,000 over the last. Uh, year which is up like 30 or forty thousand from what you normally see so you know you're trying to fuel some organic growth that way by by reaching into into uh, and finding more patients that you can you can treat um, but it's still going to be you know this is still a tough and very competitive marketplace for Gilead Sciences to be competing it is however good news to see them increase the low end of their guidance for the year by a billion and a half right I mean yep, it's, absolutely. That's, that's good news, right? Especially because
0: they, they are going to have some things to watch out for in the competitive landscape. Particularly, I'm referring to AbbVie has a drug with an August PDUFA date, which is when the FDA will Sign off on it, hopefully give it the green light. This is a drug called Mavaret. and it's a, a pan genotypic cure, meaning that it can treat any of the different types of hepatitis C. And the company is hoping to get an eight week dosing approval, which would ha- come at an advantage to its main competitor from Gilead Sciences, which is approved for a 12 week dosing schedule.
1: Yeah, you can use Harvoni for eight weeks in genotype one. You know, it's Gilead's Harvoni. Um, but in, I continue to believe that it, the future of hepatitis C treatment will be going shorter and shorter duration therapies the European Union just approved maverick for abV um, hard to believe that the. US won't follow suit when the PaUFA date hits um, and, and of course it remains to be seen. I mean, they talked about this in the conference call too, Christine, right? They talked about what the threat could be from this new drug. And it was kind of like, you know, we think we have some advantages. We still have 80% market share despite all the competition we've seen. We think we have advantages over Maverick in certain other genotypes. So it remains to be seen. We'll, have, we'll, we'll compete, um, but it's too early to say, from their perspective, that it's not a threat. Or how big the threat might be. So it's something that investors should keep in mind as they're seeing the share price rise. That there could be just another wave of another battle on the uh, coming in 2018 over market share and the indication.
0: So while it certainly seems that the entirety of the Gilead Sciences story is wrapped up in hepatitis C and all of the drama there, there is so much more to this company. We touched a little bit on HIV that had very strong growth in the quarter. What stands out to you in that section of the business?
1: They have done a great job in launching brand new combination therapies that work better, pose less of a toxic risk to patients, and because those therapies are taken over the course of a lifetime, and patients with HIV are, are it's now becoming a chronic illness, people living normal lives with treatment. Uh, it's providing a stable, consistent um, flow of, of, of revenue and growth, thanks to these new uh, combination, ther- safer combination therapies. So I, I think that they, they, it's a great business for them, and if we were just talking about the HIV business, right, Gilead Sciences' share price would have probably, you know, going gangbusters if it, if it hadn't been for the drag in, in hepatitis C over the course of the last two years. So you're right that we have to, you know, keep investors focused on the fact that there are two different parts to the story, potentially even, right, Christine, a third part to the story, depending on if they ever use that mountain of cash they've got building up on their balance sheet.
0: Right. This is the other main headline that you see out there in the, the media about Gilead Sciences, is how much cash they have and who are they going to buy with that cash. Their stockpile grew to $36.6 in this past earnings report. They kicked off cash flow from operations of $3.5 in the quarter. So This company is sitting on a mountain of cash and it's only Coming in stronger and stronger, and yet there's still no real news on the acquisition front. And of course, when I'm reading this conference call, that's the number one thing I'm looking for. But I kind of realize that it's a lost cause to hope for it to come out in the the earnings call. But more than anything, I'm always curious as to how the analysts in the Q and A are going to ask the question. There was one guy that started his question about the question was about HCV, and it was about. you know nuances of that market, but he starts his question by saying, "John, talking to the CEO, John, I know if I asked you what company you're going to buy, you would tell me, but I think the market should keep guessing, so I'm not going to ask, or so I'm going to ask something else." And it just made me laugh, like these analysts really want to know. And somebody did eventually ask about business development and whether there had been a shift in strategy. But we all know that this is something that the company is working on. They're going to remain locked down on that treasure chest until they're able to actually find the correct means to w- to deploy it. and at that point they'll update us
1: yeah, and we don't want to see them rush in and and spend that that mountain of cash. I mean, that gives them a lot of financial flexibility. They're obviously paying a nice dividend. they're buying back shares. Um, there are reasons why we don't want them to just go out and grab whatever's hot because you know you could buy something and then it ends up that 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 is a dud, right? I mean there's no there's no guarantees necessarily within within biopharma. so, Yeah, you know, I think taking a measured approach and just having confidence that in the past they've identified great companies, um, and in the future most likely they'll also identify great companies, and and you know, let's just bet on let's bet on management to do the right thing and to grow the company over time. And it's not like they're not doing their own internal development, right, Christine? They've got other projects going on in R and D that could fuel new drugs. They're working on drugs to treat Nash, which is uh, uh, another kidney disease that could, you know, be a, a multi-billion-dollar indication. They're also uh, developing, um, in collaboration with Galapagos, they're de- developing a drug for rheumatoid arthritis that could be a big seller someday too. So it's not like they're not doing anything.
0: Yeah, lots of irons in the fire for Gilead. Our final topic for the day is the ongoing showdown between PD-1 inhibitors Keytruda and Opdivo. These two drugs are pretty similar, extremely similar actually. Keytruda comes from Merck and Company and Opdivo comes from Bristol-Myers Squibb. These are, as I mentioned, PD-1 inhibitors. So uh, The mechanism of action here is that uh, PD-1 is a protein that cancer cells hijack and it prevents the patient's immune system from attacking their cancer. Both of these drugs won their initial approvals in 2015 in later line settings, meaning not your first treatment, for NSCLC, which is non-small cell lung cancer.
1: Big, big, big indication. Just probably the largest game-changing drug class uh, launched in cancer over the course of the past decade. And These drugs are both already massively successful, top-selling drugs. Their indication has been expanding oh, since their initial approvals in 2015, and that has been creating this, um, I don't know if it's Ali Frazier, but this battle for market share between these two companies to, to, to dominate what is you know one of the most common cancer indications. I mean, there's 225,000 uh, new cases of, of lung cancer diagnosed in the U.S. annually and uh, that makes it obviously an extremely important indication to target. And both of these drugs um, have have done a good job of improving outcomes for patients, and uh, that's resulted in significant sales for both of them.
0: But yet, there's still this rivalry between them, and so let's let's first walk through the timeline of how how things have progressed with this rivalry. So, Optivo was approved first in March of 2015, and Keytruda's approval came a few months later in October. So. Keytruda's first approval was somewhat more restrictive than Optivo's because it required this additional testing to show that the tumor overexpressed PD1, which was the target. And so, combined with Optivo's first mover advantage, Optivo took an early lead. But it seems like ever since then, Keytruda's had uh, its luck uh, growing stronger and stronger. In August. Yeah.
1: Of- yeah. Christine, you and I talked about this. I think last year we were talking yep. about how the PD1 race
0: was shaping up, right? Yep. In August of 2016.
1: So listeners go back and check out that show. One of the things that was very, very important in this, in this for this this battle last year was Keytruda's success in a in a trial that was evaluating its use as a first line uh, treatment for metastatic NSCLC. And they built that trial um, to only be looking at people who highly express PD one. Sure enough, they delivered the goods in that trial and that led to an approval last fall uh, for Keytruda in that first-line setting. Meanwhile, Opdiva was also being studied in that same first-line setting, however, they used a more inclusive um, uh, uh, study design, where they included people with both high and low expressing PD-1, and they, their trial came up short, it failed. So, following Keytruda's approval for first-line setting, it's been off to the races. And while Opdivo still does more in sales quarterly than Keytruda, and it's still growing its sales, Keytruda's sales growth is far faster than Opdivo's, and it's really been closing the gap over the first two quarters of this year.
0: Absolutely. So it, it leapt over Optivo in October twenty sixteen as far as approvals go, when it got the the go ahead to market itself as a first line treatment in high PD one expressing patients instead of chemo in that first line setting. And then in May of twenty seventeen, the FDA approved Keytruda for use alongside chemo in that same first line setting, regardless of PD one expression. So if you look at some of the numbers here, I'll I'll start with the first quarter of this year. Keytruda sold $584 million worth. That was up 134% year-over-year. Compare that to Obdivo, which only sold well, they sold more uh, by, by numbers, so 1.1 billion, but that was only up 60% year over year. So Then you fast forward a little bit more to the second quarter that just came out, and Keytruda sold 881 million, and that was growth of 180% year over year. Compare that to Opdivo, and they sold 1.2 billion. Again, it's a larger number, but that was only up from the the last quarter, the Q1, and it was up 42% year-over-year. and So you can see that Keytruda is really, really gaining ground on Optivo here.
1: Right. You had that huge spike in sales in the first quarter tied to last fall's approval for the high-expressing PD-1 patients. And then in Q2, you added another $300 million in sales sequentially from Q1 to Q2, uh, thanks to that uh, approval for use alongside chemo regardless of expression. This is absolutely an important um, uh, development for patients and for doctors and for these companies. And I guess the reason that you know, Christine, you and I are spending time on this is that you know we can't ignore the fact that Bristol Myers last year, when they reported that failure, and Merck had reported their their success, Bristol Myers shares took it on the chin. I mean, they got they got hammered. Um, So so how this PD one race you know ends up shaking out is extremely important to investors in figuring out what the future may look like as far as sales for these for these companies and the profit for these companies
0: Right. You can tell by how much these companies move on, on news regarding their PD-1 drugs. that I mean, they're huge companies. They have so much else going on, but that just tells you how important these drugs are. For another example, AstraZeneca was working on a, a PD-1 drug called Mfinzi, and On the 27th of July, they reported some disappointing trial results, and the shares lost 11%, which I think is the most that they've ever lost in market cap in a single day.
1: Just, I mean, that's crazy for a company as huge as AstraZeneca, and it just shows you right. Wow, how important these PD1, this PD1 class of drugs is.
0: Yeah, they're they're absolutely going to be an important thing to watch for the healthcare space. And there are other companies as well working on these. You've got Roche in there and Pfizer. I'm, I'm sure there are others that I'm forgetting as well, but it's definitely a space that investors need to keep their eyes on.
1: Mm, yeah, it's very hard. I mean, I guess you know investors are always looking for what that final takeaway is. I mean, it's great to see. Okay, well, one's doing better than the other historically, right? But you know, what's going to happen next? It is very hard, unfortunately, to handicap who may end up coming out on top and dominating this market. I, I think that Optivo and Ktruda both could comfortably share this market. It's certainly big enough. I mean, you're at two billion in quarterly sales between those two drugs alone. Yeah, and that's per quarter. Per quarter, two billion and with label expansions and you know new indications for use in new cancers and by the way tons of research going on that could allow for combination therapies using PD1 drugs alongside other drugs that could further expand their use I mean, there's there's room for both of these players, and you know, I I, so it's yes, it's hard to handicap who's going to end up being the ultimate winner, uh, but you may not even have to. You may just be able to bet on both of them.
0: Great, thanks for the takeaways, Todd. That'll do it for today's show. If you like industry focus and you want to help us out, we would love for you to take just a minute to write us a review on iTunes or wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. Reviews are super important for getting our show out in front of new listeners, and we always appreciate the feedback. If you want to contact us in a less public setting, feel free to shoot us an email at industryfocus@fool.com. As always, people on the program may have interests in the stocks that they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. This show is produced by Austin Morgan. For Todd Campbell, I'm Christine Hargis. Thanks for listening and Fool on!